Let me invite you one last time today to turn to the book of Isaiah. We consider chapter 61 momentarily. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. We will not read through the end of the book, but we will consider this our final message through the book of Isaiah. We started back in February, so it's been quite a journey, and uh, it's been a delight to me. Thank you for so many of you and your affirmation along the way. We've seen in the book of Isaiah a microcosm, if you will, a snapshot of the entire Bible. In Isaiah, God is the Holy One, and there is no one like Him. Isaiah loves that term. We've said that many times. That term is uh, used some 35 times in the Old Testament, and 27 of those 35 times occur in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is enamored with the holiness of God, and he says it again and again. We learn from Isaiah, as we learn from the Bible, that God has loved his people, that he has set his love and his tender affection, even his gracious choice on those people, and that accordingly, because when God does it, he does it well, does it right, we have enjoyed him. We have enjoyed his benefits. We have enjoyed his care. We've enjoyed his blessings again and again. And we continue to enjoy them even now. And yet, as we see in Isaiah, as we see throughout the Old Testament, that in spite of God's generosity to his people, his people have abandoned God time and again. They promised him they would not, but they did not keep their promises any more than we do. And God, the Holy One, will not tolerate our disobedience. He has responded according to his nature. May I I say this as a sort of a parenthesis, if you'll permit. It's always interesting to me, downright funny at times, that people act like that God who is holy should not be offended when we are not holy. And it is as if people believe that God is entirely presumptuous, that God is somehow wrong, that God is in error because he takes issue with the fact that his people don't follow him. (laughs) I mean, are you really thinking when you make that comment? Do you really calculate what you're saying? Isn't it consistent that the God who is holy would be disappointed, would disapprove, would take issue with the disobedience of his people. So accordingly, in Isaiah, as well as in the rest of the Bible, we have found that God takes issue with his people. He judges his people. He finds them guilty of disobedience. The Bible uses a variety of metaphors, and Isaiah uses most of these, uh, that we're guilty of spiritual adultery. We're guilty of idolatry. We're guilty of worldliness. We're guilty of callous and cold religion, pro forma religion. And he has kept his word 
by telling us that if we act that way, think that way, talk that way, live that way, feel that way about God and the people whom God has commissioned us to live around and to be with in this world, then God will judge us, and he does so in the book of Isaiah, ultimately by sending them into captivity with a foreign land. But the good news of Isaiah is the good news of the Bible. Remember that in spite of God's judgment upon his people, he preserves a remnant. He preserves a people unto himself. God does this according to his grace because he promised he would. He promised Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, you are not a people, but I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a great people, as numerous as stars in the sky, sands of the sea. I'm going to make you a great people. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as a result, the captivity of God's people comes to an end. It's not a one-way ticket to oblivion. It turns out that God is more merciful than we would be. And our character, we would respond to someone who had repeatedly hurt us by ultimately just banishing them. Say, in effect, they are a non-person. They are a non-entity. That's our nature. That's not God's nature. Praise God. It is not his nature. And we each one benefit today because God is not like me or you. Don't make a God like you. He will not be nearly as merciful as the one who is God. But there is a second promise that God keeps in Isaiah that he keeps throughout the Bible, and that is the promise that he made to David, the king of Israel, in 2 Samuel 7. I've said to you before that on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament passages, if you're looking for the four great chapters in the Old Testament, one of them is 2 Samuel 7, one. He said, well, I don't, I don't even know what's going on in 2 Samuel 7. Well, then you need to fix that. Because 2 Samuel 7 controls the rest of the Bible. You want to know what God is doing, even right now? Then you better understand 2 Samuel 7. There David receives a promise from God that his descendant will sit on the throne of the people of God for eternity. A son of David will be king forever. Now, the problem with that, of course, is Israel right now is in captivity. And a son of David is not on the throne. It appears, doesn't it? It appears that if my people are over in Babylon, that the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 is a lie. And God is now on trial. We live in a culture today that puts God on trial repeatedly. God has abandoned me. God has forgotten me. God has failed me. God lied to me. God is wrong. God is not wise. God is not loving. God is not. God is not. God is not. God is not. Re invariably, the culture puts God on trial all the time. And we, living in this culture, must contend with these voices in our own minds. Has God lied? Has God forgotten his covenant? Has God actually become inept? 
There are pressures in life that would suggest to us that the reality is that God is somehow inept. And captivity would be one of those if all of a sudden all of us, the people of God, were deported to a foreign land and the promises of 2 Samuel 7 don't appear to have a chance of being accomplished, then what are we to do? How are we to respond? We are to become discouraged or to become depressed or to become angry or to become militant. We, we decide to, to take matters into our own hands and so forth. All of those things would be normal human emotions, and yet all of those things don't fix the problem, which is the integrity of God. See, no matter what you do to defend God, you don't really have what it takes to defend God. Because the so-called evaluators of God don't really care what you think. And your opinion is not going to decide anything for them. Instead, all you can do is live accordingly. As for me, Joshua said, and my house, we will serve the Lord. You and your house may not, but we will. This is the spirit of the people of God. We're going to draw a line, and we're going to live on God's side of that line. And we're going to do that because that's right, and we're going to do that because that's all we can do. We cannot get into somebody else's head or psyche or convince them in some way that their way or their thinking is wrong. We cannot do that. But we can live our lives as if we believe it. And so we must. And so God sends these words through Isaiah to his people who are living in exile in the midst of a people, a culture that rejects God. And he wants them to take hope. He wants them to be buoyed by the joy of knowledge that God will not and has not forgotten them. So these people in captivity, these people who are oppressed, these people who are disfellowshipped or disenfranchised, these people who are separated not only from their homeland but also seemingly from their God are counting on two things, just as we are today. It seems to some that God has forgotten us. It seems to some that God is not capable or that God is not willing or that God has somehow morphed into something that he heretofore has never been. It seems, key word here, seems. Stop trusting your judgment of God. Invariably, I'll talk to people who want to evaluate other people and it, it doesn't matter you know we, we we have all kinds of conflict in our lives right we conflict in our homes conflict at work conflict in our neighborhoods conflict in the culture conflict in the government conflict even at church occasionally because <laughs> people just love to evaluate other people. And invariably, when they talk about why they're disappointed or whatever, they'll come back to something that says something like this. Well, if it were me, or it seems to me, 
or I just thought. And I'm, I'm, I'm more sophisticated than this. I have done this once with my wife. It didn't go well. But I've thought it perhaps a million times since then. But what I'd like to do is, as soon as somebody says, well, it just seems to me, I'd like to just throw my hand up in their face. I'd like to say, you know, it really doesn't matter to them what it seems to you. They're not living their lives in your head. They're not living their lives with your values. They're not living their lives with your thinking. That's the reason they don't care what you think. So it doesn't really matter what seems to you. It doesn't really matter what you think. Because you don't have sovereignty over them. I don't care who you think you are. We've raised three girls. I'd like to tell you I'm going to have eternal sovereignty. <laughs> Turns out they married turkeys. And there went my sovereignty. Now on payday, that's better, by the way, when the son-in-law has sovereignty. But every now and then, you'd like to be able to say, I didn't raise you like that, and I don't think that's a good decision. But you don't have sovereignty anymore. It doesn't really matter. Well, I want to tell you something, friend. The difference with God is he does have sovereignty. And you will not wiggle off his hook. You will not disobey him and have full immunity. You will not pout your way away from God. You will not manipulate your way from God. You will not. And the Bible is replete, and Isaiah is as good an example as any, with the fact that God does not negotiate with his children. He does not. He has sovereignty. He doesn't need to negotiate. He not only has sovereignty, he has wisdom. Turns out he's not only in charge, but he's actually capable of being in charge. You ever had a boss who's in charge but not capable? That's a train wreck. That's not what we have. We have a God here who has authority and he also has skills. He has competence. And beyond that, he has affection. Have you ever had a boss who is in charge and he is capable, but he doesn't like you? That's again, a train wreck of a different kind, but it's still a train wreck. If you're not the apple of the sovereign's eye, where does that leave you? That leaves you on the outside looking in. You get passed over. You get worked around. You get ignored. You get hurt. You get forgotten. That is not our God. He is sovereign. And he is capable. And he also loves us dearly. And this is the point that he makes again and again in Isaiah. So these people who are in captivity, I was saying a moment ago, 
are counting on two things, and they're the same two things that I'm counting on today, and I hope you're counting on them as well. I've come this morning to exhort you to keep your eye on these two things. Number one, that there is a holy one who keeps his promises, including not just a promise to bless, not just a promise to take care of, not just a promise to provide a future. Those are great promises, and they are real, and they are true, and we're counting on them. But there is also a promise of his everlasting mercy. Because I know that I need more than just a promise that God is going to take care of things. I need to know that he's going to take care of things in a way that is tender. I don't want to become a casualty. I don't want to become a statistic. I don't want to become isolated from God. I don't want to become forgotten by God. Neither do you. But how do you think people in Babylon would have thought in Isaiah's day? We're in captivity, and we've been here for decades. How long? Oh, Lord, how long? Read the Psalms. How long, oh, Lord, will you put up with that? How long, oh, Lord, will you make me wait? How long, O Lord, will you not remember your covenant, your promises? How long, O Lord, before you come and you fix this? How long, O Lord, have you forgotten me? I promise you, friend, if you're here today, you care deeply that God has not forgotten you. And I have extremely good news that the chapter we're about to read It's going to remind you of that again and again. There's a second thing that people who are oppressed or people who are overwhelmed, people who are in the throes of sorrow, sadness, even as we all are, are counting on, and that is that the Holy One will send a king. The Holy One will send the one that he promised who would come and take care of us. You know, I I say it this way. If I'm sort of trapped behind enemy lines, if I'm in the midst of a hardship unlike any I've ever experienced, I'm hoping God sends the special forces and that he doesn't send some guy that just finished boot camp. I mean, those guys that just finished boot camp are 18 years old, 19 years old. I'm figuring that if I'm behind enemy lines and it's really, really, really hard, I need somebody who's capable. And here's what God says. I'm not just going to send you anybody who's capable. I'm going to send you my son. That's what I'm going to do. And he's more than you can calculate. He's more than you can understand. He's my son. And he will not fail. Because I will see to it that he cannot fail. And you will be rescued. Because I am the Holy One of Israel. And I have spoken. So I don't know where you are today. 
But you don't need the JV. You need the varsity. On top of that, you need the king. And the good news of the Bible is that God sent his son, who is the king. And he's plenty capable. And he's plenty merciful. And he's plenty strong. And he's plenty powerful to rescue you. And you need not be discouraged. You you need not be afraid. You need not be depressed. You need not be disconsolate in any way. So God will send a king. Isaiah calls him not the king. He calls him the servant, the servant of the Lord. He will rescue us, and he will make everything right. So let's read in Isaiah 61. We're going to read just a few verses of this chapter. And I would commend to you the balance of the book at another time. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they shall be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy well these are precious words and I hope they'll become even more precious in a moment certainly they are to me I want to remind you simply of two things this morning in light of this passage as Isaiah tells us here in chapter 61 we have a profound need in our lives we all recognize this intellectually we have a tendency to lose as it were our moorings Uh, emotionally because life can deliver uh, a profound emotional punch in the gut again and again and again Uh, sometimes because of our own doing oftentimes because of the doing of others we are sinners others are sinners we sinners live around sinners pretty soon that stuff slops on us and life is full of hurt life is full of sorrow life is full of pain Yes, it is. Yes, it is. He identifies that in a moment we shall see. But I want to begin by pointing out that we need resources for this life that are not our own. I want to tell you, friend, 
that God has good news for you this morning, and that is that he has given you, promised you, his resources, not yours. The good news is you don't have to rely on you. Maybe you're in the shape you're in. Maybe we're in the mess we're in. Certainly we have contributed, but maybe we are because primarily of us. It is our sin or our hardship or our difficulty. And really, frankly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was brought on by person X or person Y. What, what matters is it's now on me. It's my sorrow, it's my pain, or it's my difficulty, or it's my hardship. But you'll notice how he phrases it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord. We need resources that are not our own. And exhibit A of this is the Spirit of God. We need His Spirit. Now, Isaiah has already said much about this Spirit, that the Spirit would come, and the Spirit would come in a way on the servant, that the Spirit would impact, empower this, the servant. Here, Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So note then that God is going to send this servant, and this servant is going to come, as it were, with power, with his spirit. God is going to not only send his son, but he's going to guarantee the success of the son. In Isaiah 59, the chapter we've just skipped over, verse 21, he says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. God tells us that he's going to send his spirit, and his spirit is going to be upon the servant. Let me tell you why that matters. Because in the ancient context of Isaiah, they are in captivity in Babylon. Babylon is a world power. They're a superpower before we had such a term. And uh, eventually Persia is going to come and gobble them up. So the, the next superpower is going to destroy this current superpower. But if you're the children of God, it doesn't matter whether the oppressor is earlier the Assyrians, now the Babylonians, soon to be the Persians, I would ask you, does it matter who's running the jail that you're in? I'll tell you, no, it doesn't. It still feels like jail every moment of every day. Does it matter who's, if you will, the 800-pound gorilla that's looking over you, threatening you, oppressing you, restricting you, robbing you of your joy, your purpose, your fulfillment, your satisfaction? Does it matter? Does it matter whether it's, it's some chemical, some drug or alcohol or, or maybe some other addiction, some emotional addiction? Does it matter who the oppressor is, what the oppressor is? Does it matter what kind of captivity you're in. The point is, if you're a captive, you're a captive. And you're not your own. You don't get to go and do and enjoy the freedoms of liberty. So the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the only hope we have of conquering this oppressor, whatever it may be, is spiritual. 
I promise you that in, if only the wisdom of man is your asset, then you don't have much. If only the strategies of men are your assets, then you don't have much. If only the tactics of men are your only asset, then you don't have much. I can tell you as a pastor, I've dealt with folks over the years, many, 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 many times who have come to the end of themselves, and that's exactly where you want to be. I'm tired of running, tired of trying to gerrymander this thing. I'm trying to manipulate this thing. I'm trying to focus on all of this, and it's all just wearing me out. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm losing weight. I'm miserable. I'm lonely. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. And even worse. Because you haven't fought with the weapons that are not of this world. You don't have the power of God if all you have is what man can give you. At the end of yourself, there is hope. And that's the point, isn't it, of Isaiah? That God has placed them in a, a jail of sorts, a prison of sorts, captivity. They are slaves in a foreign land. You got a fix for that? You got a solution for that? You got a strategy for that? You got a tactic for that? No, you don't. I promise you, friend, if you're finally at the end of yourself, you're in a good place. You're in a good place because you can begin to look up and hope in a God who loves you and sends a power to help you, his spirit that you know not of, that you cannot calculate. Let me show you an illustration of this in the New Testament. John chapter 14. John 14. Jesus tells us that when he goes, that God is going to send a comforter or helper. He tells us here in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. I will, I will ask God to give you the Spirit whom the world cannot receive. He's not coming for the world. Rather, he is coming for the people of God because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Which means then, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, then the Spirit of God has come to dwell within you. Hear me say this, friend. You have assets that you've been ignoring. You have strength. You have help that you know not of, that you, not, that you are not fully tapped into. You have the power over, and you fill in the blank, whatever it can be. There's, there are endless difficulties in this life, and yet the Bible proclaims that God's Spirit has come to live within us to give us strength, to give us resources, to give us wisdom. Do not ignore his spirit. Do not fail to recognize that's precisely what God intends for you to, to do, is to look to him, to hope in him, to cling to him, to rely upon his spirit. There's a second asset, if you will, or second thing that God mentions here in Isaiah 61, 1, and that is that not only his spirit, but he promises his anointed one, his anointed. Notice the phrase, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed me. Now, 
we don't do a lot of anointing these days. Anointing involves, in the Old Testament, would have involved oil and uh, would have involved pouring oil over the head in some way uh, or perhaps anointing uh, instruments of sacrifice. The, the, if you will, the, the altar is anointed with blood and so forth. So that, that phrase anointed is, is not one that we typically use. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for a wider use of the term. It seems to me that God has done the ultimate anointing here. Notice what he says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has not anointed you or me, but the Lord has anointed his holy one. And, and we know exactly who this holy one is, by the way. And he is not you. He is not me. In Isaiah 49, he identifies the anointed one as his own servant. Here, here these five verses, 49, 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. He tells us plainly that his anointed one is the servant, the one that Isaiah identifies as the coming one, the Messiah, the one who would come to put an end to all of this captivity or the end of all of this hopelessness. In Luke chapter 1, the Bible tells us that Jesus is that one anointed from the womb. Hear these words in verse 35, Luke 1. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High. Where have we heard that phrase? The power of the Most High. That's Isaiah's language. Who who accomplishes the birth of the Son of God, the Spirit of God, in the anointing work of God, places this seed in the womb of this woman, Mary. And God is glorified. God accomplishes His will. God demonstrates His power, and He does so beautifully here in the person of the Lord Jesus. And then, if you will, the ultimate icing on the cake. Jesus claims that, in fact, this phrase, the anointed one, is of him. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, hear these words. Scripture says that he came, Jesus, to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me 
to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, and if you'll permit me simply to paraphrase this phrase, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which is another way of saying that person, the anointed one of Isaiah 61.1, that's me. That's me. Today, this scripture has come true right here, right now, in me. In other words, friend, if you don't have Christ, you don't have God's plan. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God's anointed one. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God's servant. If you don't have Christ and you don't have the Lord's son, you don't have Christ, you don't have the Lord's King of Kings. If you don't have Christ, you're lost. You're lost. If you don't have Christ, all you've got is you. And you've got oppression. You've got the Babylonians, you've got the Assyrians, you've got the Persians. You've got your own sin. That's what you've got. If you don't have Christ, you're going to be more miserable than you've ever calculated, ever imagined. And the only antidote for any of that is Christ. Jesus claims that he is the anointed one, and so we too must embrace him. I beg of you today, look to Christ. Be reconciled to Christ. Hope in Christ, not in yourself. Your strength today is not in you. Your wisdom today is not in you. Your hope is in Christ. There is only one hero who's come to save us all, and there's only one who could take Israel out of Babylon and that is Christ alone the hope of glory but there is a second thing I want you to note here quickly in Isaiah 61 and that is that we need the help that the world cannot offer I want you to notice the depth of our problem in verse 1 he says the Lord has anointed me to bring good news and I want you to notice these four characteristics four conditions if you will of humankind to bring good news to the poor sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound so i would ask you do you find yourself poor brokenhearted captives or bound i would tell you that those are four general categories for bad times bad times if you find yourself today discouraged if you find yourself today overwhelmed, if you find yourself today outnumbered, if you find yourself looking for help, I want to remind you that your help does not come ultimately from worldly sources. Ultimately, your help comes from the Lord. Now, the Lord may work through worldly sources, through his assets, through his people. He does that in so many ways. We will not belabor those. But you'll notice that's not the end of it. He goes on, verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Notice in verse 3, he promises to all of us the oil of gladness, the garment of praise. When's the last time you could say that you were truly glad, that your heart, that your soul, that your life was full of joy? I promise you that if you, if you have such a history in a moment in your life, you do so because in the 
core of your very being, you know that God is for you and that God is working in your life. Notice this servant comes in verse 4 to build up, to raise up, and to repair the ruins of the former devastations. To build up, to raise up, to repair. I would ask you this morning, do you find yourself in need of such a servant? Do you have family members who have need of such a servant? Do you have co-workers in need of such a servant? Understand this, God promises through His Son, the Lord Jesus, that He intends and has now accomplished the sending of this anointed one who would perform these deeds for us. If you're poor, your poverty will end. If you're brokenhearted, your broken heart will be mended. If you're a captive... You will be set free. If you find yourself in jail, ultimately, spiritually, imprisoned, then he holds the keys, he alone. Increasingly, we live in a world that doesn't trust the church. They don't trust the church because they don't trust preachers. (laughs) They don't trust the church because they don't trust Christians. There's been a lot more talk than do. They don't trust the church because it doesn't appear that Christians have any advantage over non-Christians. We don't appear to have a higher joy, greater peace, more comfort, more strength. We don't appear to the world to have those things. Well, it is true that the world sees, if you will, opaquely at the things that we see clearly. It is true that the world cannot understand all that we know because they don't have the Spirit of God. And yet, friend, it is also true that Christian people have failed We have failed to walk righteously and soberly in this present age in the manner in which Paul writes to Titus in the New Testament. We have failed to demonstrate that we have a true joy in spite of the hardship and difficulty. We have failed to live like people who are free instead of people who are imprisoned. We've failed to live like people who are spiritually and emotionally rich instead of people who are spiritually and emotionally poor. We have have failed to recognize that the Spirit of the Lord came upon the servant of God and by means of the servant of God has come upon us. And now we have this power for ourselves. This power is our power, a power to live free, to live joyous lives, to live not as captives and prisoners, but to proclaim this good news that we've experienced for ourselves to others so that they may know the joy that we have. We must be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Why are you handling this this way? Why are you joyful? Why are you Hopeful. Why, why are you anticipating 
Good days, better days. Why are you looking not to this life, but to the life to come? Why are you not scared or intimidated by these circumstances or those circumstances or these enemies that the world tells us that we should be afraid of? Why are you different? The answer is Christ. Because he has saved me. Because he has rescued me. And I refuse to live like a prisoner because I am not. I refuse to live like one who is a pauper because I am not. Spiritually, I am gifted. I am rich because of the mercy and the kindness of God. The Spirit of the Lord has been placed upon his Son and by means of his Son has been given to us. The Christian church today should be a testimony and a witness of the power and presence of God and His Spirit. We should be different. We must be different. So I urge you today, if you're here today without Christ, turn away from your sin, turn away from your poverty and your brokenheartedness, turn away from the prison that you've built for yourself or that others have built for you by means of your own sin and run to Jesus. And if you're here today as a Christian, realize that the Spirit of the Lord has fallen upon his son and now by means of your faith has fallen upon you. I urge you today, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help today as we submit to you, as we follow you, as we rely upon you. I ask, Father, for your strength. We are sinners and we know, Father, of the the imprisonment of sin. And yet your word says that we've been set free and that we don't have to walk in that condemnation. We don't have to walk in that defeat. Thank you that Jesus has come and that he's come to set us free, free indeed. We love you, Lord. We're so very grateful for your tender mercies. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and glory of God through Jesus Christ, your servant, your son, our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.